So the question is, why is the resurrection so important? Why must we defend this so vehemently? I will recall for you one of the dumbest things I've ever personally read when I was your age. There was a book that came out called Velvet Elvis. Does anyone remember that book? From the look on your faces, I'm so glad that none of you have read it. Because it was written by a very popular pastor of this mega church. He had like 10,000 people meeting somewhere out in Minnesota. The church got so big, they bought a mall. Like all jokes aside. As if someone bought the East, you know, it would be like if someone just bought the Brunswick Square in 18, kicked every business out and made it their church. So like they turned the baby gap into where the babies were dropped off and cared for. And to not trash this theologian too harshly, although I really could if I wanted to, because he's written some pretty other atrocious books. He said, you know, when I was a young Christian, I used to see theology very solidly, almost like it was the foundation of a building. And I'm going to tell you, that's actually a great way to view theology, by the way. Because everything else on your house is founded upon the thing we call the foundation. You ever wonder why they call the bottom of a house a foundation? Because it's foundational to its working as a house. If you were to go home and your roof was leaking and you couldn't get your front door to shut and the windows were really tight, let me help you out here. Before you call a roofer and a carpenter and a plumber and all these other people, you should really call someone who's foundational in all things mechanical because it sounds like your foundation has shifted. And these are actually real things that happen to homes. If your foundation is built in a wonky area, marshy, mucky, you have a, maybe you have a high clay ratio there in the soil, houses will shift. And I mean, the shift has to be less than a quarter of an inch. If your house shifts off, everything is no longer square in the house. So you have to re-firm up and change your foundation and get it straight again. And that in itself could preach over and over again. Our lives are foundationally in Christ Jesus. Didn't Jesus say, a wise man builds his house upon the rock and a fool builds his house upon the sand? It's one of the greatest teachings that Jesus gave for us to constantly be milling that over. But this theologian of old said, well, you know, I used to think of it very foundational. Now I think of theology like it's a trampoline. He used the fun analogy, you know? It's, it's, it's fun. Everything, it's flexible and springy. And to go to my brick wall, I now think that theologically, we can take a couple bricks out of the wall and everything's okay. And I got to tell you right now, someone with an associate's in engineering, that's crap. You cannot take a couple bricks out of a wall and tell me you're, you're still like, you're tight with your house. Like, yeah, Robbie came over yesterday and he like, he brought a five pound sledge and he knocked like seven bricks out of the side of my bedroom. But I'm good, you know, like birds are flying in and outside creatures and critters. I think I found a couple roaches in the bathroom. No, we're good. No, you're not good. You're not good with taking bricks out of a wall. All of the bricks come together. We use mortar and all kinds of wonderful joining of fixtures to make sure that walls are solid and you can keep everything that lives on the outside on the outside, outside. Humans go on the inside. And this dope went as far as to say, what's the big deal about the virgin birth of Jesus and the resurrection? He said, what's the big deal? What will we lose? Let me fill you in. We lose Jesus. You catch that? No virgin birth, 
and no resurrection from the dead, and Jesus is just any old Middle Eastern dude. That's the problem with dumb theology. It will affect everything else you do. And in my opinion, this guy to this day is deeply off the tracks. I don't know where he is. His name is Rob Bell. He used to have these deep moments with Rob Bell on the beach. And apparently it's raining. Praise God, we've all been looking for it. We're in a drought. But Rob Bell would like take his iPhone out on the beach and walk along and have like these deep contemplative moments. And it's just so goofy. You can't lose the resurrection, okay? Our faith is fixed upon it. I hope you see that tonight. You see, the resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. It's exactly what Paul said. The resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. It's a condition of salvation. Go read Romans 10, 9 through 13. It's a condition for salvation, believing that God has raised him from the dead along with confession that he is Lord of all. Go read it. And there is no hope without it. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ should be the single greatest thing that gives you hope that you too will one day rise victorious in a exaltation, glorification body. Let's read this together. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 19. If Christ has not been risen, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. This is where Paul is telling you right now. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, Christianity is the biggest and cruelest joke anyone has ever pulled off. Because everyone's in their sin. No one is forgiven. We are not sure if there is life beyond the grave. How can Jesus be the Lord of all if death has conquered him? It brings up all these different things. So it's amazingly important. So what's a good test for an orthodox view, which is what we should be holding? Well, ask someone these few questions. Do you believe in the empty tomb, the resurrection? It was a physical resurrection. And in the bodily appearances of the resurrected Jesus. Four very simple questions. Do you believe the empty tomb was truly that vacated? Do you believe that there really was resurrection? Was it actually physical resurrection? And do you believe in the several bodily appearances of the resurrected Jesus? Now, let me dispel one thing from you very quickly because I find that a lot of Christians don't catch this point. Jesus Christ is the first resurrection. Catch me and turn on your thinking brains right now. Because I always get someone afterwards, let me tell you something about the Old Testament. Don't tell me about people who were raised to life again. They all died again. There's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection. Don't we resuscitate people who OD on Oxycontins? They get there with the Narcon, and then that person who was extremely dead and filled with narcotics all of a sudden is now, they're expelled from their bodies, and oop, they're up again, and you know, and they, they say, hey, nothing happened. I feel great. 
no, we, we, we know how to resuscitate people. Many of God's prophets have resuscitated people. Jesus even did so to people who were dead. The widow of Nain, her son was dead, wrapped in burial cloth, which means they went through a very, very long ritual, you know, eight to 12 hours of preparing his body. Trust me, he was dead as a doornail. And Jesus raised him to life, and then that young man grew up and died again because Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. That means he is numero uno. He's the first resurrection ever. And resurrection is transformation. It's being raised in the same numerical body, that which was corruptible and open to decay, to that which is now eternally glorified and will never see death, decay, disease ever again. Massive subject in Christianity, and I find that most pastors gloss over it too quickly for my liking. Break it down and explain it. All right? There's a big difference between resuscitation and resurrection. Way different. But if you ask someone all these questions and they go, yeah, absolutely. Well, congratulations. Because I want you to know you may have just conversed with a Jehovah's Witness. Because that's all the things Jehovah's Witnesses believe. You could have had a conversation with probably three to seven different, what I like to call, pseudo-Christian cults. If you talk to Mormons, they'd say the same thing. If you talk to anyone in the Freemasonry cult, they'd say the same thing. If you said, if you asked this to a Seventh-day Adventist, now look, I, I, I go easy on them because I think they're culty, but not a full-blown cult. And a lot of people want to disagree with me about that, but there is room in the body of Christ for us all to learn to be a little more gracious. Jehovah's Witnesses have a different gospel. Now, what I'm going to show you next, I want you to know right now, is from their literature. Dr. J doesn't trash anyone's belief, but I will, without fail, critique it night and day. I will never malign it, though. This is straight out of their literature. The Jehovah's Witness view of Jesus' resurrection is thus. The fleshly body is not the body of his glorification, nor the body in which he was resurrected. <laughs> wow. Okay. The king, Christ Jesus, was put to death in the flesh, and he was resurrected. I bet you didn't know this. An invisible spirit creature. And this is getting like Dungeons and Dragons, Lord of the Rings, Land of Mordor for me right here. It's just like, you know. Oh my goodness, Jesus showed up. He was an invisible spirit creature. That's smoking crazy right there. As in, what are you guys smoking? Because it's making you crazy. Therefore, the bodily appearances, buckle up, here it really comes. After his resurrection, were not the body in which he was nailed to the tree. They were merely materializations for the occasion, resembling one or two of the occasions of the body in which he died. So then Jesus didn't. In all honesty, rise from the dead. Want to know why the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe Jesus bodily rose from the dead? I, I know at least two or three of you have taken a class on cults with me. And in the recesses of your mind, you all know because Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus Christ was Michael the Archangel. That's why. So when one of your friends tells you, well, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, I study in a kingdom hall, and we believe the same thing about Jesus. Shake your head as hard as you can side to side. That's not true. It's not true. It's just not. 
So then in all honesty, we need a better test for an orthodox view. There are some necessary questions to ask. Try and get these down in your notes. And if it's too hard for you to take notes, drop me an email and I'll send you this whole PowerPoint. You can have it. It's my PowerPoint. I do whatever I want with it. You want it? Maybe you can make it even better than what I did with it. Have at it. But ask people this question. Do you believe Jesus rose in the numerically same body in which he died? That's resurrection. Do you believe Jesus rose in an essentially physical body? That means Jesus' body could be handled. It could be seen. It was really a body. And in a continuously physical body. In Acts 1.8, how is Jesus taken up from his disciples? Visibly, physically, bodily. As they gawk into the clouds, an angel comes out and says, Men of Galilee, straight up, why are you scaring? Why are you staring into the heavens? This same Jesus will return in the same manner. So guess what? When you open your Bibles to Revelation 19 and it says Jesus is on a white horse, guess what, brothers and sisters? That's not metaphorical. That's not allegorical. That's how Messiah is coming back to earth. Physically, visibly, bodily. So let's look at some evidences for the physical nature of Christ's resurrection. Twelve in all, kind of in a fun way. Now, these are sort of in the appearance order chronologically. You have Mary Magdalene in John 20 verses 10 through 18, who both saw Jesus, heard Jesus, and then touched Jesus. Now, many people get hung up when Jesus said, don't touch me. Right? What a terrible translation. If you're still reading a translation from 1611, you might want to think of something from the 21st century. I'm just saying. The translation of the Koine Greek there is, do not cling or hold fast to me. Ready for the New Jersey vernacular in 2022? Don't get overly attached to me. Now, why can Jesus say that to Mary Magdala, who he cast out multiple demons? Because in 40 days, he was rescinding back to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit was coming 10 days after that on the day of Pentecost. So don't get overly attached to me is exactly what Jesus said. He never said, don't touch me, which has led to several different heretical teachings. Then you have Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. It's probably the same account, but now this is coming from a different gospel writer. This is the perspective of Matthew, who again saw, heard, and touched the risen Christ. Notice in both accounts, there is the emphasis upon an empty tomb. Now, don't you think the ladies who actually physically buried Jesus knew where the tomb was? They showed more devotion than at least 11 of the apostles of Christ. I think the ladies who handled most of his prep and burial, along with Joseph of Arimathea, who was not a disciple of Christ. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He became a disciple of Christ. Don't you think they knew where the body was? Of course they knew where the body was. 
They were going back to make further preparations because they did it so fast on the eve of a Sabbath day. Then you have the, again, resurrection eyewitness of Peter and John just before Mary Magdalene. Had those two guys actually stayed there, they too would have seen Christ along with her, but they were a little impetuous in their behavior. They ran down and found an empty tube, even with nicely folded grave clothing in the corner. They didn't see, hear, or touch Jesus right then and there, but this is another witness to an empty tomb. Now, people say, who cares? Who cares, Pastor Jay? Let me help you care a bit. In Jewish society, to touch a dead body made you ritually unclean for a week. Ergo, most Jews didn't like touching dead bodies. Dead bodies were not easy to get rid of. You had to have a sepulcher that was family-owned or an ossuary where your body could later, a year later, your bones could be recollected and put in. This was a very family-oriented thing. Until this day in Israel, there are, many, there are many common burial grounds where family all collectively bury their dead because the Jews to this day believe in resurrection and they all want to see Messiah together at the great resurrection at the end of days. So IW was like, well, they just got rid of the body. Really? Where? Where? Ask yourself a second speculative question if you are the real intellectual type. If all the disciples are running around three days after his death saying he's risen from the grave and some dope somewhere had the body, why not take it out, put it on a cart and parade it through Jerusalem and just put it down immediately? Because Jesus rose from the dead and there was no body to parade around. Two disciples in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, Cleopas and an unnamed disciple walked with Jesus. They saw him. They heard him because they were having a deep conversation. They sat down and ate a meal with Messiah. And the second he went to bless that meal, he disappeared from their sight. And they both knew that they had seen the Lord. My guess is in typical rabbinic fashion, Jesus would have raised his hands over his head to bless the meal. And upon doing so, his scars from his crucifixion three days earlier would have been there to see because his body bore those marks. Then Jesus appeared to 10 apostles in Luke 24 and John 20. Shortly after he appeared to Mary Magdala, they saw him, they heard him. And then it's very much implied that they touched him because they ate food with him and they saw his crucifixion scars. One disciple is not there and forever we've dubbed him as Doubting Thomas. I'm so glad in heaven we're not gonna call him that because I think he just got kind of a raw deal. But Jesus does come back in verse 24 of John 20 and now Thomas the twin, also known as Didymus, He's there. And Jesus lovingly and caringly goes to him and says, Thomas, you said you wouldn't believe. Well, now I'm inviting you. Come here. Take your fingers and put them in the nail prints. Take your hand and thrust it in my side. Stop disbelieving and believe. And Thomas hit the deck and said, my Lord and my God. Because for some people, seeing is believing. You need that? 
You've got it from Thomas. For him, seeing was believing, and he went to a grisly death in India when he brought the gospel there, and the nationals at the time said, stop bringing in your foreign God, stop these things or it's going to not go well for you, and he preached the gospel even more, and they tied him between two white stallions and drug him throughout the streets until he was dead. I can think of a lot of horrible ways to die. I would imagine being tied behind two stallions, two horses, and drugged throughout a city is a pretty horrific way to go. And all the apostles all died horrific deaths. For what? Something they fabricated? Something they thought up? What was to be earned in any of these things? They all suffered martyrdom for what they taught. The clearest and most logical thing is that they saw Jesus resurrected. And don't fall for the goofy theories like the swoon theory or the cool tomb theory. Oh, Jesus felt refreshed in a tomb. Right, wrapped up in 80 pounds of spiced linen, he laid in a stone sepulcher in the pitch black and just felt better. Totally, absolutely. Nonsense. Absolutely nonsense. But people teach that. So you're trying to tell me the professional executioners don't know how to kill people. What were the Romans? Professional executioners. The two thieves crucified with Messiah, when they saw that there had been some stuff going on and the you know, earth shook and the sun was dark, they went and broke their legs and those guys died, lickety split. Jesus didn't die from the Romans. He yielded up his spirit and they thrust a spear under his rib cage, piercing his pericardium, the blood and water fluid, showing Jesus died of a heart attack. If you really need the medical terminology, that's what it would be. Or I can tell you of a broken heart. For he died for the sins of the world. He had already yielded up his spirit. He was already dead. You think, why all the information? What's with the historicity of it all? Well, this is how twisted Rome was. If anyone that you put to death was seen alive again, now you took their place. And since Roman citizens, which every Roman centurion or member of the armed guard would be, instead of that, they cut your head off. Which I'm also thinking is probably a pretty horrific way to die. After they tortured you. So guess what? Professional executioners, put your mind at ease. They do their job. They do their job. Roman did a couple other unsavory things to guards who were found drunk on watch, but we can have a sidebar conversation about that because it's just, it's just not pulpit conversation. Then Jesus appeared to seven apostles at the Sea of Galilee, all who were named for us there in John 21, 1 through 14. Amazingly there, Jesus asks his disciples for food, and then when they actually came in with some, guess what? Messiah had already fish roasting on an open fire. Pretty cool. He asked them to bring some more, but Jesus, the provider, was already there, and he already had food laid out. They saw him. They conversed. They heard him. These are physical things. And it's implied that they touched him. And I'll tell you why, because I've been to Israel. And I will tell you how modern Jews eat. They eat the same way ancient Jews eat. They lay together, head to foot, 
around a mat or around a shallow, low-to-the-ground table, and everyone pulls from the same bread, and everyone pulls from the same chunk of fish, and everyone sops in the same bowl. They dip in there, and they double-dip right in Israel. So if that offends you, don't go. I had to teach some of our other Westerners some you know, Israeli etiquette, because I had a woman who just got spazzed when our tour guide like went in with a piece of pizza, right? And he got a big chunk of tabbouleh. It was really good where we were at, and he ate it. And no sooner was he chewing and talking at the same time, because that happens, and he went right back in a second time. And her eyes got like this big. I take her outside. I'm like, you need to calm down. It's very common in the Middle East. If someone did it in America, everyone would just spaz out. But food in the Middle East, if you know this, is for family, which implies deep connectedness and intimacy. Hands touching and everyone together, slapping people on the back and joking around. I like it a lot, way better than the way we eat in New Jersey. It's way more preferable. So I'm thinking that they without fail again touch the Lord Jesus here. He appeared to all the apostles in Matthew 28, 16. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that Jesus was seen by 500 brethren, most of whom are still alive. Well, if they saw him and there was an intimate connection and they were followers of Messiah, I guarantee Jesus probably said something, which the implication again is that they heard him. He was seen by James, his half-brother, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And what's significant about that is that his younger half-brother did not believe he was the Messiah of Israel. He didn't. Matter of fact, we catch James mocking Jesus at one of the festivals. Why don't you go up and show everyone how awesome you are, bro? To which Jesus said, it's not yet my time. And James went from a skeptical doubter to a pillar in the Jerusalem church. All of the apostles were gathered there with the Lord Jesus very shortly before he was taken from them and ascended back to the right hand of the Father in Acts 1 verses 4 through 8. They saw, heard, and again, it's implied that they touched him because they shared one last meal before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And last but not least, the apostle born out of due time, Paul, who was putting members of the church of Jesus Christ to death via bringing them back to the Sanhedrin, saw and heard Jesus as he was knocked off his pony. So, we have a lot of evidence for the resurrection. The empty tomb is the same tomb in which he was placed which means the same physical body placed in the tomb permanently vacated it alive three days later, quite alive. They knew where they laid him, okay? Same body is a resurrection because the neo-Orthodox view is that God destroyed his body and gave him a new body. And I tell people, you don't have a clue what that means. That's crazy. You don't understand? It's called transformation. Metamorphos in the Greek is where we get the English word metamorphos. Literally, it's a transliteration of the same word. I ask everyone real quick. I'm real weird, okay? Two things I like in this world. 
entomology and etymology. Etymology is the study of words. Entomology is the study of insects. I already told you I was weird. Does a caterpillar get a new body? No. From someone who studied biology in college, thank you, Petros. No, they don't. They transform from the larval stage into a chrysalis, into a butterfly, and you can watch it all happen for $8 because you can send away for your own butterfly kit, and I suggest you do because it's nothing short of miraculous to watch that happen in two weeks. I, I would go as far as to say is like it's trippy science because everyone's like, oh, they spin themselves. No, they don't. Caterpillars do not spin themselves into a chrysalis. They metamorphosize into a chrysalis slowly over two days. They just keep changing shape, changing shape, changing shape, changing. It's amazing. And then they crawl out of there transformed. If they got a new body, I have to ask you scientifically what happened to their old body? What, did it melt? Did it evaporate? Did, did they eat themselves while they're in there? While they're, it's the same body. It's called transformation, which is why I get so bugged out with Christians when they tell me they're getting a new body, and I tell them they're not. You're not, all right? I had a homeschool mom tell me one time, in heaven, I'm going to be a one. And I said, in heaven, no one will care. So don't buy too many bikinis, sweetheart, because you're tripping, all right? You want to be a size one? Try an apple, all right? You ate your way into it, eat your way out of it. Losing weight's not hard. It's just for people who are somewhat disciplined, though, okay? It's stupid, because it really is. People have this theology in their head, like, we get a new body like you can get a new car, well, I'm driving this old beater with 185,000 miles on it. It's a piece of crap. I'm going to go truck. I know what I'll do. I'll drop this off at the junkyard, take a couple bucks, and go buy me a new Lexus. Yeah, that's a car. That's not your body. That's a car. You want a better analogy? Take a 67 Chevy that is literally falling apart and spend 10 grand on a restoration and that's going to be a really beautifully transformed old classic that looks brand new and shiny. Fix up the engine, slap on a new coat of paint. That's the difference between metamorphosis and this nonsensical new body thing. There's no such thing. You're not going to find it in the New Testament. That's dumb verbiage. It is transformation. Jesus, I know this is going to blow your brains out, was still Jesus when he rose from the dead. Jesus, he was still Jesus, which brings me to some really interesting stuff. Jesus said in or of his resurrection body that it had flesh and bones. He said that. He said he was not a spirit, but he had flesh and bones, which means he was raised in the flesh. He said flat out, spirits don't have flesh and bones. And souls, again, don't rise. Bodies do. Jesus' resurrection body showed the physical wounds of his torturers. His body revealed the crucifixion scars to show his disciples and to even challenge Thomas to come and touch them and stop disbelieving and to believe. And it's often been said, and I think it's true, the only man-made thing that will endure all of heaven and eternity are the scars upon Messiah's body. And I'll tell you why I think they're there.
because I'm not omniscient and I don't know, but I'll share my heart with you. I think they're there to show us the love of Almighty God forever. I think they're there to show us salvation might be free, but if you think it's cheap, you've got a lousy view of it. Sure, it's free for us, and it costs Jesus his life. So I think that they will, be, they will be there for a perpetual reminder of the amazing grace which we possess in him. Jesus ate physical food four times after the resurrection. Aren't you happy about that? I mean, I know I am. Be like, well, hang on a second. We can eat food in heaven? Yes, according to this. You can even find it in the book of Revelation. The fruit of the tree of life is there for the healing of the nations. Oh, baby, I don't know what's on there. But I've got this sick, delusional fantasy that I've shared with several of you. That when you get to heaven, the tree of life will yield for you whatever is your greatest passion. Twinkies, ho-hos, the ones with peanut butter inside. I don't know whatever those are called. Reese's peanut butter cups hanging on the tree. It's like, that's it right there. The healing of the nation has begun. <laughs> it's my sick fantasy right now. It's probably just going to remain perpetually a sick fantasy. But I would imagine that God's fruit in heaven smokes any Twinkie made in a factory by men and women. That's my guess. The whole aspect is that Jesus ate meals and he offered it as a proof that he had a real physical body in the resurrection from the dead. Jesus' resurrection body was touched and handled. Jesus, again, was touched by Mary in John 20, 17. Then by the women, plural, other women in Matthew 28, 9. He challenged his disciples again to touch him. That he, again, he was him. He was back. And he even told Thomas again to feel the wounds in John 20, 27. Stop disbelieving and believe. The resurrection body of Christ could be seen and heard. The body of Christ was again seen after his resurrection with the naked eye and heard with humans' natural ears. There's none of this supernatural, invisible spirit creature going on in any of my Bibles. How about yours? Physical, bodily resurrection. The word in Greek for body is the simple word soma. S-O-M-A, very easy to pronounce, as easy as it gets in koine. The Greek word soma always means physical body in the New Testament. There is not one exception of this usage of the word for body other, other than a physical body, whether it's that of animal or human, is semantic range and doesn't mean anything. But there's nothing that ever means there's some kind of soulish, immaterial Something with the word soma. It always means physical body. In the entire New Testament, all 27 books, you can't find one exception. And I tell people, I think that God did that as a proof text for that. There's nothing ambiguous about soma. It means body. Because only bodies rise, brothers and sisters, not souls. The physical body of Christ died. Not his soul. No one's soul can die. No one's. The soul as well as the spirit is eternal in nature and it is immaterial as well. 
It's the body that dies. It's the body that gets sick. It's the body that sins. It's the body that sees corruption. It's the body that needs to be healed permanently, which is what resurrection is. That's what glorification is. Thus, it was this body of the Lord Jesus that rose from the dead, just like Paul spends time putting emphasis upon in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For the body is sown is the same body that is raised. The same body sown in death is the one raised in life. Otherwise, everything Paul is saying in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't make any sense. And a good rule when reading your Bible is, is when the plain literal sense makes good sense, do not seek another sense unless it results in some kind of nonsense. That's called the number one rule of Bible reading. When you read something that doesn't make sense, ready? Rule number two is seek another sense. When Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, is Jesus a tree? No. Okay. No. Jesus isn't a tree. So I hate to tell you, but metaphorical language in the word of God is usually 98.999% of the time easy to identify, which actually tells us another common thing that is a misstep in a lot of people's Bible reading. Stop reading the Bible allegorically and symbolically and overly subjectively as if everything is about you. Brothers and sisters, nine times out of 10, it ain't about you. It's not. The greatest disease in America today is self. Our biggest problems in this world are ourselves. The biggest psychoses and neurotic tendencies we have are up here and in here. It's self. That's why we have to die to self and follow Christ. You know Jesus said, if any man would be my disciple, he would deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me daily. That's a threefold Recipe for success from the mouth of Jesus. That's what we need to be doing. Deny the I. It's the best thing you can do. And submit to Christ. Follow him. Follow him. Furthermore, resurrection is from among the dead. That's the preposition in Greek, ek, E-K. It just usually means out of or from. The phrase here in all of these passages means that Jesus was raised from the actual grave in which he was buried, where the corpses are placed. He was, what? Resurrected from the dead, which means Jesus' body, without fail, experienced death. His spirit, I believe, ascended to the Father, and then it came back into his body, which is the classic textbook definition for resurrection. You want to know when you'll be dead? Let me tell you right now. I don't care what medical professional is here in the building. I'll debate you on it all day long. You are not dead in this world when brain activity stops or when your heart takes its last flitter flutter. All right? You're not dead when that happens. You know when you'll be dead? You will be dead when your spirit violently separates from your body. That's when you'll be dead. You know when you'll be resurrected? When that same spirit comes back and reunites to that dead body to be 
resurrected. How do I know? It's not because I'm smart. It's only because I read the Bible. James said, for as the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead. That's 2,000 years ago before any advances in medical science, isn't it? James had good theology. You'll be dead when your spirit leaves your body. That's really when you'll be dead. Because that's when Jesus was dead. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That's when you'll be dead. You'll be resurrected when your spirit comes back into your body. Which brings another point up that absolutely tickles me pink. We will recognize our loved ones in heaven. Paul comforts the believers with this anticipation in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Can't wait to see everyone again who has gone on before us. Heaven will be the greatest reunion this universe has ever seen. Because the resurrection body is physically recognized, because Jesus was recognized in his body like anyone else with a physical body. Yes, he veiled himself from the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, and I don't know why, but I think it was because he was stretching their faith out. Because when he ran into these two guys, I mean, someone had licked all the lollipop, all the red right off their lollipop, right? And, and I love the nature of Jesus, how he does that, because he draws faith out all the time. These guys are walking around like, hey, what's up, man? Hey, why the long faces? Oh, didn't you hear? We thought Jesus of Nazareth was, we thought he was the Messiah and the stinking Romans, they killed a man and he's in a grave and we don't know what to do. And the disciples are all busted up and they ran like stinking cowards. And Jesus goes, really? Have you not read in the scriptures that this is what Messiah must suffer? And Jesus gives those two cats the Bible study that I would gladly surrender five of my earthly years to hear. Because it says he opened the scriptures and showed them every single place in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, pertaining to him. What kind of Bible study do you think Jesus could give with you on a seven-mile walk? Yeah, it's like they didn't hop up a path. It was seven miles. It says so in the text. Seven-mile walk? That could take a couple hours, especially if the person you're speaking with is saying things that are like blowing your mind. You might slow down to a crawl. They did recognize him at that meal at a certain place. And all of his other disciples did. Thomas didn't shout, who the heck are you? Did he? No, he recognized his rabbi. He recognized Messiah Jesus. And again, shouted, my Lord and my God. Therefore, Jesus' resurrection body was the numerically same body because his crucifixion scars prove that it was the same body. The empty tomb shows us that it was the same body. Jesus said it was the same body. It's clear as day in John 2, 19 through 22. He said, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews looked at him and said, are you kidding me? The temple, this thing was 50 years in construction. You're raised up. What kind of master mason are you? And John says, those goofballs didn't understand. He was talking about the temple of his body. 
The fact that it did not see corruption indicates that, again, it was the same body. This is the Jewish belief. Peter, standing up on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.31, if you want to go see it yourself, quotes from the psalmist that says, you did not allow my body to rest in Sheol nor see corruption. Why? Because it was raised to glory. Note, changing in the resurrection body, which is really transformation, is from a mortal, which can die and see corruption, to an immoral, an immortal, unchangeable body. It is not from material to an immaterial body. I don't know where people get that notion. Change is change in the physical body. Not change of the physical body to a non-physical body as the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Think about just normal change in humanity ourselves. We have the same body as when we were younger, yet aren't there a lot of changes in it? Changes are in secondary qualities, not primary ones. Changes are usually accidental, and even if they are, they're not substantial. If you lost your arm in a tragic work-related accident, would you stop being you? No, of course not. You'd still be you. It was an accidental loss, but I believe in the great resurrection, you'll get that arm back. And I think a lot of Christians need to hear stuff like that. I got, man, I busted my bodies playing sports when I was 16 to 17 to 18 because I graduated really late. And man, like, that knee's clicking. You want to know why? Because it's raining. My knee is a barometer. Well, that's what happens when you snap it forward playing high school football at high speed. I didn't want a barometer knee. I think normal knees are awesome. I'm looking forward to no painful clicking in the knees. I'm looking forward to it. I'm stoked on it. I really am. Now, Jesus' resurrection body underwent change, but again, it was still all physical. Listen to how orthodox this is to the early church and how important it is that Jesus, again, physically rose. 1 John 1, 1, that which you... <clears throat> That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Could John have told anyone any harder how Jesus is real in this statement? You almost want to get to heaven and say, John, bro, you laid it on thick. Yeah, we wanted you to understand that we really spend time with Jesus start to finish. 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh, um, every that, that has, let me try that again. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. That's how important Jesus' physical body was. Because if he didn't incarnate and have one, he's not a sacrifice suitable for sin. So John's saying flat out, anyone coming up with these nonsensical, invisible spirit creature type interpretations, let me tell you right now, 2,000 years removed from modernity, they're not from God. You have to believe and defend the resurrection. It's central to Christian doctrine. Central to Christian doctrine. Second John 7 for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus as coming in the flesh. This is, follow this, a deceiver 
and an antichrist. That's how passionately strong John was. Because there were deceivers and mockers in his day called the Gnostics who were teaching ridiculous things like Jesus merely seemed to have a body, but he was actually like a a floating vapor, you know? He didn't leave footprints in the sand. He just floated an inch off the ground. Sorry, I can't help myself when I talk about stupid stuff. I just, I lose it because that's stupid, okay? Uh, It's just dumb. It's It's too dumb for me to handle in my mind. I can't take it. Yeah? But how did they crucify Jesus? Because he was a floating, vaporous apparition. Really? How? Wouldn't nails go square through a spirit, don't you think? Right? Pass right on through? No. Jesus' physical body makes him a kinsman redeemer. That makes him a member of humanity. He came to be that. You know the law of the kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer had to be the next of direct kin. They had to have enough finances to redeem that which was lost. And then the third one, so important, they have to be willing. And if you read the small but powerful book of Ruth, you'll see that Boaz was not the nearest kinsman. He probably had an older brother who could have redeemed Naomi and Ruth. And when he goes and says, the fallen land of our brother Elimelech is up for redemption, this guy goes, yeah, right on. And then all of a sudden Boaz goes, oh, by the way, Ruth the Moabitess, who is a big old Gentile, she comes as a bride. And this guy went, no thanks. What went wrong? He was the closer kinsman. He had the right of redemption. He had the right of refusal as well as choice. He could have, and he didn't. Apparently, financially, he had no problem. He could have, but he was unwilling. You see, Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory, as almighty God, has cattle on a thousand hills. He can redeem anything, for everything is his. And of course, he wants to because his nature is love. God is love. Go read 1 John 5. God is love. But what's that last thing in the law of the kinsman redeemer? The next of kin. How can God possibly be the next of kin of humanity? Because Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, forever wed his deity to humanity in the person of Jesus. And now Jesus is the Goel. What is the price of redemption? He pours out his own precious and efficacious blood. He is the Goel. He is our kinsman redeemer. You lose that, you lose salvation. And that's why John comes on strong. He says, anyone who says Jesus has not come in the flesh, he's an antichrist and a deceiver. That person's lying to you. So why is the physical resurrection of Messiah so important? Three simple reasons. First, without the resurrection, Jesus' death would go without divine interpretation and endorsement. The resurrection amounts to Father God's clear signal that Jesus is the powerful son of God who has conquered death and reigns as Lord of all. And that's exactly what Romans 1.4 says. We find the context of salvation in resurrection. Secondly, it proves to us that Jesus is who he says he is. And furthermore, that Messiah is someone that we can place our faith in for salvation. Jesus is trustworthy. And maybe you've been really messed over by a lot of people in this world. And if you continue to put yourself out there, you will get 
messed up. And people will disappoint you. But I tell you right now, the man, Christ Jesus, will never disappoint you. Will never lie to you. Will never be unfaithful to you. For he is faithful when we remain faithless. Jesus answered and said to him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that's exactly what Jesus did in raising himself back from the dead. He proved he is who he said he was, Mashiach, the promised one, the son of God. Third and lastly, it proves that there very much is life after death because one has gone on there before us. And that's important because at some point in everyone's life, St. Thomas Aquinas said, everyone's going to ask themselves three crucial questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going when I die? It's called the big three. And I don't care where you were born. You're going to ask yourself those questions at some point. And you probably at your ages already have. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22 is so crucial for our faith. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first roots of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Just as Adam brought death upon the whole human race, Jesus Christ's blood is again enough for all who with the eyes of faith will believe. And you can't have an unrisen Savior. Because you know what an unrisen Savior is, brothers and sisters? That's a martyr. And Jesus is no martyr. He's Messiah. So as we break into small groups, I want you guys to ponder this and share with one another. Why is the physical resurrection of Messiah so important to you?